From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. In 1920, a young woman named Amelia took her first plane ride, putting her on a course to change history, not only for women in aviation, but for aviation at large. She would end up buying her own plane eventually, a Kinner Airster biplane on her 25th birthday, and by 1922 had already set the women's altitude record of 14,000 feet. She became the first woman across the Atlantic by plane, first as a passenger on June 17, 1928 and later as a pilot in 1932. She would go on to win the American Distinguished Flying Cross and the Cross of the French Legion of Honor. In 1929, she helped found the 99s, an organization still around today of female aviators. By 1935, she had been hired by Purdue University to serve as an aviation advisor and career counselor for women. She was a pioneer, a super celebrity, a record breaker, a best-selling author, and a role model to millions. Her life was truly astounding when considering just how dangerous aviation was in its early stages and just how few career options women had at the time. Sadly, her incredible life and career would be overshadowed to a large extent by what would become her final flight. This week, I speak with my guest, Chris Williamson, who is the podcast host of Vanished as well as author of the book Rabbit Hole. The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. We discuss the details of her final flight as well as some of the many theories. Welcome to this week's mystery The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart on From the Void. All right, Chris Williamson, brother from another mother, apparently. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, to be a guest on the show today. Absolutely, it's an honor. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, like you, you're a podcaster yourself and an author, and you've done uh, a great deal of research into one of my favorite topics. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's right up there with uh, you know, was there a second gunman on the grassy knoll and 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 all those different <laughs> mysteries. Um, Amelia Earhart is a is a huge one. That's that's mm. one that is yet to be solved, and uh, it, there's a lot of mystery behind it. So, uh, tell me a little bit. Well, first of all, tell folks uh, what you do, and uh, you host a a wonderful podcast, and tell folks a little yeah. bit about your work. Yeah, I've got a couple of podcasts. Uh, I, so we started with Chasing Earhart, which you know it's ironic. You know, tonight we're recording. Uh, you know, toward the end of September here, we we just relaunched a, a rebranded version of that show uh, yesterday, last night. Um, and I I have, if you include these new batch of episodes that will be coming out in the coming month or so, a couple months, um, we've got a you know well over a hundred episodes for sure, uh, maybe a hundred and pushing hundred and twenty on that show. Uh, and then I started a while back a podcast with my now co-host uh, Jennifer Taylor. Her uh, we do a show called Vanished, and it started again with Earhart, as everything I do tends to start with. Uh, and uh, we've been doing that for a while, and we've since covered, you know, Jack the Ripper and John Wilkes Booth and DB Cooper, and we just kicked off season three of that show a couple of nights ago. 
and all this is really just coincidental and timing. But yeah, all that really just started happening again uh, in the last couple of days. So it's uh, this is really a fun timing to be on the show. Yeah, yeah, cer- certainly uh, a lot of um, you know interesting topics that a lot of folks that are, are probably listening are, are definitely interested in. So what got yeah. you, obviously you kicked off both podcasts with Amelia Earhart. So where did you first uh, start to get interested in, in, in that whole you know, history of, of, uh, Amelia Earhart. Yeah, it was when I was young. A lot of people come into this when they're young, maybe not as young as I did, but I started around third grade around that mark. I remember it very vividly, uh, a history day project that, uh, my teacher was running at the time. And we were supposed to pick a person from history and do a report. Very basic. Uh, of course at that age. And I just, I saw this image of Earhart. I didn't know who she was then. And it's a real famous image. If you Google her now, it's the bomber jacket photo image of her with her hands on her hips. It's a pretty, you know, iconic image of her. And I just kept coming back to Earhart as I got through grade school and even into junior high and then into high school and then into college. It just kind of kept coming back around. And oddly enough, it, it left for a long time, for a good amount of time. And I'll, I just started, I just sort of picked it back up again, uh, back in maybe 2007, 2008 or so, uh, and started doing, you know, just research on my own on the back end. And we started reaching out to people, uh, back in 2014 ish, 15 ish, something like that. And, uh, here we are, you know, 2022 years later doing that. So, uh, it's one of those things that just, it's always been part of my life. And really the story I've just told you is, is not unlike a lot of the stories of, of, for people who get involved in these cases. Yeah. So, so set the stage for people. Uh, what, what era are we talking about here? So Amelia Earhart was really a pioneer of her, of her day, but kind of set the stage for, um, you know, what was aviation like in those days? Yeah, it's uh, I refer to it a lot in in the season one of the show. And now it, we've turned that into a book recently. And we'll I'll talk about that later. But yeah, it, it was the golden age of aviation. It was in the you know, this is in the 20s and 30s. This is, wasn't long after the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. Uh, this was something that was sort of developing. It was in the developmental stages in the infancy, if you will. And Earhart came up and just exploded onto the scene. Uh, once she took part in the first uh, transatlantic flight uh, as a passenger, even so before she even got behind the wheels uh, or, you know, they got into the cockpit, so to speak, she was a star and she had been flying prior to that. They were looking for somebody to sort of take up that mantle and be the Lady Lindy, uh, the female version of Charles Lindbergh, just years after Lindbergh got so world famous, uh, you know, George Palmer Putnam, to his credit. Uh, Amelia Earhart's business manager and eventual husband saw something in her right away when she walked into his office uh, and met with him initially. And so this was a woman who just exploded onto the scene. It, it, the scene wasn't ready to to handle sort of, uh, you know, the enigma that she would become really quickly. And uh, Earhart just sort of, you know, rose to the heights of aviation, the likes of which we've still never seen. I mean, there's a lot of stars in aviation now, of course, but when you say women in aviation, you know, people are going to say Amelia Earhart, you know, they say that for a reason. And there's, that's not to discredit a lot of really fantastic female aviators out there that don't get their due. But I think Earhart did a lot for aviation in general. And and of course her, you know, her disappearance, is like the juiciest disappearance in history. So you add that onto (laughs) it and it's, it's a whole another thing. 
Yeah, what's what's interesting? I, I was listening to uh, your past episodes and uh, learned a lot. I just I just didn't know you guys really do a great job of going into to great depth and kind of explaining kind of the background of of the whole environment of the period. And yeah. so it's like one one thing you just mentioned that it you know aviation was still in its infancy. So it's it's one thing to be a male pilot back in those days mm-hmm. when it was a very male dominated society. It's another thing to be a female pilot back in those days and just getting the opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, so talk about, and, and also the, the other thing that was interesting too, was just how dangerous it was. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember yeah. it, you guys talking about the fact that, you know, oftentimes like they would have, uh, some sort of get togethers or whatever, and there would be pilots who'd be missing because they <laughs> crashed and died. <laughs> they so, had since died. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit, like just how dangerous of a job was this? Yeah, it was everybody had stories. Everybody had crashes. Women died in crashes. Men died in crashes. Uh, it was not a, a you know, I, I'm after talking to a lot of the experts that were on the show and that took part in the book and everything. I'm, I'm hesitant to say that the planes themselves were unsafe because as Boyd Kelly in our show, very own show says, you know, a lot of these these planes are still operational today. You know, these planes are still, you know, pretty safe. And it was as safe as it could be at the time. But at the on the flip side of that, it, you know, it was an experimental, like I said, developmental time in the air. And women were sort of coming into their own and showing people what they could do. You know, they had been sort of held down for a long time. It would have been dominated by men, as you mentioned. And when they got a chance to get into the air, not only Earhart, I mean, Florence Klingensmith, Poncho Barnes, Ruth Elder, Ruth Nichols. I mean, there's there's a lot of women you could go on for a long time about a lot of these people. Bessie Coleman, for God's sakes. I mean, a lot of really incredible women. Uh, you know, um, Earhart was sort of just at the head of the pack. And she, when she could have taken a lot of her fame and a lot of her admiration and, and used it selfishly, she chose to use it selflessly and actually push the women around her uh, and push the notion and the idea of women in aviation as a whole. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a very, uh, you know, unsafe, unsure time in the sky that we have a chapter in the book and it's the title of I think episode two of season one now is called a thousand ways to die in the sky. There really was were at that point, a thousand ways to die in the sky. A lot of crazy things could happen. So yeah, if you were, if you were going up at that point, male or female, it was scary. And, um, a lot of those people died, you know, they paid in blood for a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the strides we've made in aviation today. So it's, uh, a lot of those people deserve a lot of credit. Absolutely. And it, and I know you guys talk a lot about, too, about just how Amelia Earhart n- wasn't necessarily the most talented pilot out of the bunch, but yeah. she seemed to be, for lack of a better way of putting it, the most marketable at that time. And, and yes. like you said, she was the, the Lindbergh, uh, you know, the female version, uh, you know, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's that's an interesting point. It's an interesting, uh, you know, argument to discuss because a lot of people say that, yes, Earhart was not maybe the best pilot in the world, but she was the most well-connected. She had the best management. That's absolutely true. George Palmer Putnam was a, an amazing publisher and promoter, and he does not get the credit he's due. Uh, if there wasn't a George Palmer Putnam, there wouldn't be an Earhart, the likes of which we know her, uh, you know? And so, but on the flip side of that, excuse me, on the flip side of that, 
Earhart's got to do the flying. She's got to be the face. And Earhart had this really, I, I compare her all the time. People kind of look at me sideways sometimes, but I compare her all the time to sort of what Marilyn Monroe can do at the time. She could just turn it on. She was very, uh, very well, very self-aware uh, around media and around people that wrote for the newspapers and around any kind of press. Uh, she knew how to walk a very fine line. She was a larger than life personality. Make no mistake about it. It seems that when you look at some of the stuff that she's done and you look at her talking and you look at her being sort of quiet and coy, uh, that was absolutely part of the persona. And she could, on the flip side of that, cuss like a Marine Corps DI. She got her hands dirty. She hung with the men. She, you know, she was really involved in the scientific aspects of things. She was a very different kind of face, a different kind of persona. And, um, I think that's one of the things that makes Earhart so special and, and makes this case resonate so much. It's, it's because of who was at the center of it. Um, you know, it's not a, this is not a serial killer. This is not a, you know, a bad person. This is a person that was, and still is really America's sweetheart to this day. You know, when you look at it. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, she, all the odds that she was up against, uh, during that, that day and age, um, uh, you, mm. you have to, have a fire in your belly. I would, I would presume to, to be able to push through all the obstacles that she no doubt faced to, to be as successful as she was. So, um, where did this love of flying come from for her? Like, when did she start to develop this, this desire to be up in the skies? Yeah, that's a good question. She kind of just did things, you know, she wasn't, it wasn't like she, when she was a little girl, she knew she was always going to fly. It wasn't like that. It's actually not that romantic. It's really, more of a scenario of her trying lots of different things in her life and excelling at lots of different things and sort of stumbling across aviation. It wasn't until she went up into the sky herself uh, alongside Frank Hawks, who took her up in an in a aircraft uh, for her first flight. It wasn't until she tasted that, essentially, that she knew, OK, this is the direction my life is going to go. And she fam- has a famous quote. You know, as soon as I was, you know, 100 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. So she was, you know, she really knew at that point. But prior to that, she had seen aircraft and wasn't that impressed. She had seen she had been going through a lot of different uh, sort of crossroads in her life. And I think that sort of makes her relatable uh, when, you know, young kids are, are going through research processes and, prog- you know, and, and programs and things. And they're they're doing reports on Earhart. They're realizing that, yeah, this is a woman who was sort of looking for her way and came across aviation and made a decision and just went with it. And uh, that's really how it happened. It wasn't, um, it's not as romanticized as, as it could be, but uh, yeah, she came into it by accident, to be honest with you. And she was just intrigued as soon as she got into the air. Like a lot of women probably were at the time when they tasted air for the first time, it was a special experience. Yeah, absolutely. So talk a little bit about her progression to, I'm sure when she first set out, it was just, you know, the desire to, to fly and to, to get experience. But how did she go from that point to becoming kind of the, the face of aviation, at least, you know, at, at that period? Yeah, I think she knew right from the get go, as soon as she uh, really attained a certain level of fame, she knew that she could parlay that into something positive uh, to raise uh, really just awareness and uh, to to raise um, really confidence in the idea of women in aviation. And, you know, she had a lot of friends. She per- participated in a lot of different races, uh, you know, air races around the country. She really worked double and triple time 
you know, after flights and after doing all that stuff uh, to sort of become, you know, to, to stay that face and to, to promote aviation. That's why a lot of people tie that into the idea that she wasn't that good of an air, of a pilot is because while she didn't physically have enough time to get up into the air and practice as much as a lot of the other women did, she was busy. She was doing other things uh, that were beneficial to everybody in the end. So I think, um, you know, it just it she catapulted really overnight. And then when she when she made the first transatlantic flight solo in the Vega, that's really what if she was already really famous and that just launched her into a whole nother stratosphere. And at that point, I think that's where she really, you know, linked up with with Putnam at that point. I mean, they had obviously known each other prior to that and all that jazz, but they really turned it on and kind of like went into the stratosphere at that point. And she just you know, I think it was in her nature to promote, uh, you know, aviation in general and women in aviation. She wanted a legacy. She wanted an impact. She was going for the biggest historical impact she could possibly make. Make, And I think she knew she was well aware of of what her contributions to history were at the time or were becoming at the time. So very self-aware woman, very smart. Yeah. T- talk a little bit about, too, because one of the other obstacles she must have faced was, you know, flying back in those days is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. So how did she go about, uh, you know, funding these these endeavors? Yeah, she had a really interesting career as a really a, a product uh, endorsement, uh, you know, person for lack of a better term. She she was so like, you know, you have all these people that are social media influencers now and everything. She was think about that, but maybe like to the 10th degree, because she was actually, you know, she was doing something um, major in aviation and she was using that to endorse products. Everybody wanted her to be the face of everything from tomato juice to cigarettes, to cars, to luggage. She was an editor for cosmopolitan. Uh, she was a lecturer. She was making, you know, gosh, I mean, three to $400,000 probably a year just on the lecture circuit. Um, you know, now if you look at it in today's money and so she was making some really good, uh, you know, good financial moves and professional moves with the assistance of George Palmer Putnam, her husband, who was managing her career full fledged at this point. And she was, yeah, she was making the best of it. And that's how she was supporting herself coming up. She worked every imaginable job you can think of. She was a social worker when they found her in Boston. And I think she really had a a love and a talent for that and probably would have gone into that. Uh, prior to that, she was a nurse uh, at the end of World War One. She treated a lot of the people that came back from the war, and that's where her distaste for war sort of grew and festered. And that ties directly into some of the theory later, if if depending on what you believe, uh, as far as you know what her attitude might have been towards different acts and different things. But yeah, she she had done a little bit of everything. Again, not unlike a lot of women in that time, they were working lots of odd jobs uh, to be able to pay for their flights, uh, to be able to pay for their training, and then to be able to buy their first airplanes. I mean, this was this was grinding, ground up, floor up, you know, to the top kind of stuff. And uh, she was definitely in there in the mix doing it. So so talk about all this, you know, leading up to, you know, she's, she's engaging in these races, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and getting this practice in. And then, uh, she makes this transatlantic flight, as you mentioned at first as a passenger, and then she makes the flight, you know, where she's mm-hmm. piloting herself. Uh, talk about what, what a big deal that was. Cause now it's, you know, commonplace. We're making hundreds right. of flights transatlantic every day. Um, uh, right. but it was fairly unusual back then. Right. So talk yeah, about how dangerous that was. 
Yeah, it hadn't been done. Uh, this is open biplane, open cockpit. You're in the elements. You're in the weather. This is not a comfortable. I mean, how many times have you been in a in an airliner and it's gotten a little bumpy and you're you know it's get <laughs> right. a little scary at first. You imagine you being out in the elements. There's no GPS. There's no you know there's no satellites. There's no navigation of any kind, and you're going at it without a navigator. This is before the world flight. This is before Fred Noonan comes into the picture and all that jazz. This is her by herself in the elements. And it's very scary. And she was in uncharted territory. Absolutely. In a lot of her career. And this seems like a woman who was very comfortable in uncharted territory. She loved being in that uh, position. She loved being able to break through into things to, and to complete things that hadn't been done prior to that. Uh, so, you know, this was a very scary time because you're flying across the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know if you've been, you know, it's a big ass ocean. It's really, <laughs> yeah. really big. Uh, so, yeah. and again, that comes into, uh, you know, the Pacific Ocean, you know, that comes into play later when she's trying to spot Hallett Island and she's out in the middle of nowhere and it comes into some of the the theory there. But it's like, yeah, it, it was a really, uh, you know, scary, uh, difficult thing to do. But she seemed to have a, a grasp on fear. And we talk about this a lot. She seemed to like just really push into fear and lean into it and just sort of, you know, go straight on to it uh, and then go through it. And that's what she sort of, you know, that's why she was sort of so well loved and well, you know, known instantly. Uh, it was because of her attitude It's because the way she, uh, you know, statements she made just like really crazy, like mic drop statements back in the day about, you know, when they would do these races with women. All these these all these air derby races, especially the first one in 1929. Right. Uh, uh, she's given press and and people are interviewing her and she's talking to other people and she's saying, look, you know, all the men that are around all these these male pilots had this vision of, of this race being a disaster and us cracking up all over the country. So the only thing we can do is prove that their fears have been foolish. Like she'll say really great, like amazing things in a time that women just didn't say those things. She had you know, uh, really a lot of gusto, a lot of guts. I mean, she really, I mean, uh, you know, to put it, you know, for the, I'm going to date myself, but she gave no F's, you know, as they say, as, <laughs> as the kids say nowadays, right. She really did right. it. She would look people right in the eye and tell them to go get bent. You know, yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do how I'm going to, I'm going to do this, how I'm going to do this. And there's nothing you can do about it. And she would then go and do it just like she said she was going to do it. So yeah, I mean, you know, just an amazing person. Uh, and you know, she, it was just sort of ingrained into her soul, you know, it was kind of like meant to happen the way it happened. Yeah. It, it just seemed like she was the perfect candidate for, you know, for what they needed at, at that time. Yeah. She, she lifted. That's what she did. Oh man. So, so talk yeah. about, so she, she completes this, this transatlantic flight. This is a huge right. deal. Um, and so like really after that accomplishment, what's, what's next, you know, how do you top that? Yeah, she starts breaking all these altitude records, uh, 14,000 feet. She breaks the autogyro record, which is this really experimental aircraft. If you look them up, they're really great. Uh, she breaks Pacific Ocean records. She breaks speed records. I mean, it just literally, you know, every couple of months or whatever, she's adding a record. Uh, some of those still stand to this day, uh, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. So she just started you know, some people are get, you know, for Earhart, I really feel like some people get really greedy for money. She just got real greedy for respect. And I, I think it, it, that, you know, that acknowledgement really played into a lot of her actions. You know, she did things because 
uh, you know, people said that she couldn't do it. And she wanted to always leave no doubt. So she just started after the transatlantic flight after, after the second one on her own, uh, they, she gets back and there, I mean, there's ticker tape parades and all this crazy stuff. And she could literally stop then if she wanted to, or just rest on her laurels and lecture for the rest of her life and probably live a pretty cush life. But she decides to go harder and faster and further and farther and, and all those things, uh, you know, that continue to inspire women now to this day. So I, and men, you know, I, I should say that uh, to correct myself, just people in general. But yeah, she she just starts breaking records. She starts collecting records like people collect baseball cards. And she's doing <laughs> that in like the golden age of aviation when people were falling out of the sky all the time and stuff. And, you know, here's this woman that's just like this triumphant hero. Uh, you know, she's the country looks up to her, uh, you know, men and women, boys and girls um, all, you know, look up to her. They flock to her like a, she's a magnet. You know, it, it doesn't get any if you look at some of the stuff on YouTube and some of the stuff like it doesn't get any crazier than that. I mean, she was square in the public eye. And uh, that's that's what she continued to do. That's how she built her career. She wanted to break records and just build up this really crazy career. And that that takes you really to the world flight, which is her last, you know, her coup de gras, her final attempt after building a pretty great career in a short time. So the, this this final flight, you know, the the infamous one. So talk mm-hmm. about like what what was the original plan uh, in terms of this flight? What was she set to accomplish there? So she wanted to fly around the world equatorially, uh, and she wanted to do it. Uh, you know, she wanted to go out with a bang. She was a lot of times in press. She was saying it was her her again her coup de gras. It was her last real uh, long distance stunt flight. She was going to do. And after that, who knows? That's a whole nother fun, you know, nest to speculate on. Um, But initially she was going to go east to west and she had actually started the flight with a a little bit larger crew. They had somebody for radio. They had Fred Noonan as navigation. They had Paul Mance, her technical advisor. Her husband was with her and they actually start start the flight and they have a successful flight and they set another yet another record on the way from Oakland uh, to Honolulu to Hawaii and they get to Hawaii and everything looks good when they land. Everything is good there. And then everything changes on the morning. They leave Hawaii. She gra- does something called a ground loop. And which is basically it's she wrecks her aircraft on takeoff um, at Luke field in Hawaii. And they, the, the aircraft has to be, you know, repaired. It's beyond repaired. There's again, there's images of this um, online. You can look it up. And you can see the images and they're standing on the aircraft and like the propellers are bent. It's really, it's a disaster. The biggest disaster she could have at that point, Um, you know, financially, professionally, all that stuff. And again, instead of running and hiding, I mean, they get out of there pretty quick and get back to California and the, and the, her plane has to be shipped back, be a, a boat, be a ship. It gets back and they repair the plane. And this is where some of the theory starts to come in because we don't know, how she got the money to repair that plane or to rebuild that plane. Uh, I should backtrack a little bit and say that her, she had been with Purdue university for about a year and a half prior to her disappearance or prior to her world flight roughly. And she had really established a a lecture uh, center or not a lecture center, but she established a career there as a lecturer and she was hired on as an advisor and a counselor. And they were doing a lot of scientific stuff. They had built a lab and, you know, had she made it to where women could 
her, her words were they could tinker with engines and they could like learn about the, in, you know, inside of stuff. She was really pushing science and all that jazz. So that's a whole nother thing. But she had had that established for about a year and a half and they believed in her so much that they financed the initial build, her Lockheed Electra, and she took delivery of that. And that's the one that she wrecks in Hawaii. So it, when it comes back uh, to be rebuilt, some people that believe that Earhart was a spy uh, start to argue that the only reason why she was able to take off the second time and have the plane rebuilt was because it take it took something like 10 or 11 branches of the U.S. government in the middle of the Great Depression to come together and rebuild her plane. And at the time, this was prior to World War II, and you know there was maybe some reconnaissance work she could have provided as some assistance. We know Lindbergh was a spy. That's not out of the ordinary for the U.S. government at that time. So a lot of that theory starts right there. But what we know for sure is that she did ground loop the plane, and they had to reverse course, which, again, maybe changed her life and changed Fred Noonan's life, because then that takes the most difficult part of that trip and it puts it on the end of the trip as opposed to starting with that hop and getting that out of the way and sort of eh, not so much like sailing into history really easy it's not it's not a walk in the park but it definitely takes the most difficult part of the trip out of the equation so yeah a lot of a lot of stuff happens in hawaii everything changes it goes from this really great publicity you know stunt uh that she was well on her way to doing to a disaster um, and then it recovers and then we can get to July 2nd. So it's, it's a really interesting flight all of all for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So, so talk about the, the next leg then. So she, she gets the plane repaired and, and she's, mm-hmm. she's flying this next leg. So what, when do things start to go wrong? Yeah. In yeah. That. She flies the whole flight. I mean, for the most part, that's, that adds to the sadness of this. She flies mm-hmm. the whole flight for the most part, about 90% of it. Uh, so she takes off a few months later. So, you know, it's it's later in the year. Uh, it pushes the whole trip forward. It changes winds. It, it changes, you know, you know, headwind dynamics and a lot of different things because you're in you're in different parts of the world at different times. than you were originally supposed to be. It's it's very difficult. So they had to sort of scramble and replan. It's successful. L- largely, the whole flight is uneventful for the most part. You know, they go through, they check these off, all these boxes off and they get all the way to. Uh, a little place called Lay, uh, New Guinea. And they're at Lay, New Guinea, and at, it's at Lay that they decide to hold off a little longer. There's a telegram Amelia sends to George Putnam, her husband at the time, says, we're going to hold off a day, personnel unfitness. We don't know if maybe her and Noonan were getting into it or having an, an argument or, you know, there's rumor that Noonan drank. Maybe he was hungover. You know, Earhart didn't like that. Uh, definitely that ties all the way back to her childhood and her father. So, you know, there's there's a lot there, but, uh, you know, they get to lay and they they take off from lay. There's video of the takeoff uh, on YouTube. You can look at it and there, you know, it's 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 a labored takeoff for sure, because they're on this runway that's, you know, not uh, you know, it's it's not the best suitable runway. Uh, it's It's decent, but it's not ideal. And they're sort of bouncing and she kind of comes, she kind of falls off this cliff and they don't know if she's going to make it. And she's able to pull it back up into the air. And it's like a scene out of a movie kind of in a way. And they're off and they're off from lay to uh, basically to Howland Island, which if you Google Earth image Howland Island, it's a it's a speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's it's 
a, a needle in the largest floating haystack in the world. Basically, it's this tiny little island. And that's where everything that morning of July 2nd, 1937, really that whole trip from Leigh to Howland is where a lot of little things start to go wrong. If you look at the United States government's official response to what happened. Um, and then, of course, at that point, all hell breaks loose theory wise. It goes every which way at that point. And this now becomes, you know, one of the biggest mystery ever at that point. So as you mentioned before, you know, we're, we're flying in the age well before, you know, uh, fancy navigation equipment, GPS, that sort of thing. And, and, and as you just said, you know, she's already shooting for this very, very tiny Island in the middle of the ocean. So this was Mm -hmm. already a difficult, uh, endeavor anyway. Uh, so what, what, before we get into some of the theories, because I think those are yeah. fascinating, but yeah. talk about what do we know for sure? Like, what are the facts as we have them in terms of the, the last moments before we lost contact? Well, that's a good question. And it's it's a difficult one to answer because I will tell you some facts and people will agree with them and people will disagree with them. So <laughs> it becomes it becomes difficult. We know that they never had, they never established two-way communication with their source ship, which is a little Coast Guard cutter called the Atasca. This ship was waiting uh, off the shores of Howland Island to guide them in. So they were there in place to do one job to guide Amelia in. When she got close enough, they would start receiving her signals and they would guide her in. They would refuel her, give them some R&R, get them on their way to Hawaii, right, to finish the trip. So they are there are a bunch of radio men in the Coast Guard Cutter Atasca radio room. A chief among them is a man named Chief Radio Man uh, Leo Bellarts. And uh, what's really great about that is we actually have uh, audio testimony from an interview he did with Elgin Long way back when. And we were able to bring him into uh, the modern day courtroom trial that we that we did for this, which was a lot of fun. But he he testifies. It's he's on record uh, saying uh, that they could never establish two way radio communication with their heart. So there's a lot of speculation for this. You know, is it just because you know, they were having some radio problems and it was, it's a sum of a lot of little things kind of, kind of deal, or is there something more nefarious at play? Uh, she's frantically calling out to them, uh, saying that, you know, gas is running low. We're flying at a thousand feet, unable to reach you by radio. So she's like firing all these things off kind of like us when we're, I couldn't hear you earlier. Right. So I'm firing things off to you and, and we can't hear each other. But nobody can, so nobody can communicate there. They're trying to get a bearing on her. They're trying to get her to, uh, you know, if they had had Harry Manning on board, who was on board earlier in the flight and had to depart because of the the ground loop and everything, uh, they would have had the ability to do Morse code. We wouldn't have be having this conversation right now, I don't think, because uh, they would have been able to have, they would have had another way to get a bearing on them. But it just didn't work out. There was a lot of, uh, miscommunication or lack of, you know, radio equipment functionality or whatever you want to call it. And they never were able to talk to each other. She's shouting out all this stuff and she's getting more and more frantic as it apparently gets more and more desperate situation wise. She's saying we're about 200 miles out. We're about 100 miles out and all these different things are happening. And her last word is the word wait. And that's the last thing that they, they attack or registers that she says. And she, what's really interesting is there is a, there was a well-known misconception, I guess, for lack of a better term, that she, Earhart, started to whistle into the radio 
in order for them to try to catch a steady enough signal to get a bearing to try to help her out is sort of like maybe a desperate, uh, like a Hail Mary attempt. Well, we heard from Leo Bellarts, and in Leo Bellarts' very own words, he says, a lot of people think it was a whistle. I was on the other end of that. I heard it. It's not a whistle. It was like a scream. It was like oh, a scream geez. of terror. So she, this woman who had been fearless up to this point and conquered all this fear, we might have got a glimpse into her final moments of desperation and uh, her completely being fearful that she was about to die. We don't know what happens after that point. So at that point, we can go anywhere you want to go as far as, you know, speculation. Were those radio, were, was the reason the radio, uh, was the reason they weren't able to communicate two-way radio, was that because she had pre-recorded the calls and it was part of a spy mission and they were never going to get that, you know, that feedback from her because she was never in the area. Could it be uh, that she was in a different time, that she was on her nighttime frequency and they were on their daytime frequency and there was some miscommunication and they just, they couldn't figure that out. There's a lot of different things uh, that go into it. One thing that we do know for sure, speaking of facts, is that we have those call logs, those Atasca radio call logs. And Jen Taylor, my co-host for the show, really puts a lot of effort into the show stressing that these call logs and she's right are, are gospel right now because in, it's like the final text messages in a in a domestic you know violence murder situation or something like that some horrific thing like that so we have these and on the call logs the Atasca guys are actually writing out constantly writing out something uh, something called s5 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 well that stands for signal strength five Signal strength five is at that point was the strongest signal strength they could get uh, when it comes to getting, you know, getting telling how close Earhart might have been to them. So signal strength five is probably a, about 200 or so or, or maybe even 100 or so miles out from them. And they're constantly writing S5. So according to the Atasca, her radio signal is transmitting that strongly. Leo Bellarts makes a statement on our show I expected I stepped outside the radio room and expected her to fly out, bust out of the clouds and fly over the horizon. And she just never showed up. So that's what we that's what we know. That's all we know for sure. Anybody could come on here and tell you, well, we know this and this and this. We don't. That's what we've got. Uh, we've got the call logs and we've got the official story. And then everything else is theory and idea and speculation. And this might have happened and this might have happened and this might have happened. It's that's what it is. So from this point on we're going to be speculating, uh, you know, as educational as we can, but we're going to make educational guesses here based off of circumstantial evidence and lots of it. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this two-part series on the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of this two-part series. If you've enjoyed this or any of the episodes of From the Void, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing with a friend. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single new episode. And trust me, we've got a lot more in store for this season. For now, thanks again for listening to From the Void. I've been your host, John Williamson, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>